0: This is the InFocus podcast from The Hindu. Hello and welcome to the Hindus in Focus podcast with me, Amit Barua, your host for this episode. Russian president says a military operation is now... After days on a razor's edge, Ukraine is now... And there are reports of explosions and attacks... European Union and its people stand by Ukraine and its people. It will soon be a year since Russia invaded Ukraine or to use Moscow's terminology, began a special military operation in Ukraine. A thick fog hangs over the progress of the war. Information trickling in about the war continues to be unreliable. Some larger truths, however, are obvious. There are so far no victors in this war that has been joined in a proxy manner by NATO and the United States on behalf of Ukraine. Both Russian and Ukrainian soldiers continue to slug it out as high-tech weapons play a role in the war. If the European goal behind oil sanctions and price controls was to grind the Russian economy to a halt, then that hasn't happened. China and India continue to be major consumers of Russian energy as the world awaits a resolution of the war in Ukraine. One year on, what happens to Ukraine and to Russia? Can peace break out between the two countries? To discuss this issue, I am joined by former Indian Foreign Secretary and Ambassador to Russia, Kaval Sibbal. Welcome to the Hindus in Focus podcast, Mr. Sibbal.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: Mr. Sibbal, where do you think we stand in this war today?
1: I think you've summed up very well what the picture is as of now. Uh, You're right. Neither side is on the verge of uh, any Uh, convincing uh, military success. Uh, Though Russia has attained uh, a considerable part of its objectives, though not fully, uh, it is still not fully in control of the Donbass region and the additional regions that it has now annexed are also not fully uh, under its uh, control. Um, It it is clear that they have been uh, subject to very heavy losses, both in um, men and, and material, And they have uh, not been able to um, have a a convincing uh, victory on the ground in terms of what their objectives were, which which was denazification of uh, Ukraine and demilitarization of Ukraine. On the contrary, when it comes to uh, demilitarization, we find that uh, Ukraine is more and more militarized. As you rightly said, there is a proxy war going on. United States and Europe are sending in progressively more and more lethal arms uh, to Ukraine. And the objective has already been stated quite clearly by the West that uh, they want to help Ukraine obtain some ground victories so that if and when the negotiating process begins, uh, they will have a strong hand. Which means, therefore, that at the moment they're not thinking of uh, any cessation of hostilities or any dialogue and diplomacy. Uh, They want uh, Ukraine uh, to be made militarily stronger on the ground. Uh, Whether this policy will succeed or not succeed is open to question. My own view is that it will not succeed. And at the end of the day, uh, Ukraine will be more and more punished by way of a loss of territory and loss of uh, men and material, and most importantly, I think uh, they are losing uh, their forces by the hundreds every day, and they simply can't uh, sustain this. Well, yes, the United States and Europe can send them arms, but ultimately on the ground people have to fight, and if there is such a large depletion of uh, their forces, then who's going to replace them? will then NATO send its own foot soldiers into Ukraine, which would then mean actually an all-out war uh, with Russia. On the other hand, uh, uh, Russia has problems because it doesn't want to fully mobilize. The war is not popular in in Russia. uh, The youngsters especially do not want to be uh, mobilized. Uh, As you know, many of them left the country, but I believe some of them have started uh, uh, trickling back Putin has been able to mobilize 300 additional soldiers to fight on the front and stabilize the front. But that's not enough in terms of achieving the objectives that Russia had laid out for itself. Unlike what the West had predicted, that uh, uh, Russia's uh, uh, material, uh, armed uh, um, weapons and uh, missiles and everything else were getting very rapidly depleted, and they will not be able to sustain The intensity of the bombardment and artillery fire and everything else that was going on that has proved wrong that russia has demonstrated that it has huge stockpiles of weapons and it can continue uh, this conflict uh, uh, for the foreseeable uh, future on the other hand (laughs) and that's interesting uh, the west is not able to supply weapons uh, to uh, ukraine Uh, in the quantity that Ukraine would need because the rate of depletion daily is very huge and the production capacities, even of the United States, are not enough to meet the demand for artillery shells or whatever else that they are giving them. Uh, Earlier on, they had stocks which they have uh, used in order to uh, give uh, the uh, uh, Ukrainians, you know, all the stuff, javelin missiles and... uh, and HIMARS and everything else. Uh, But once those stocks are uh, exhausted, uh, then in terms of uh, restarting production lines that produce that material in sufficiently good time to be able to practically assist Ukraine, that does seem to be a a problem. Uh, Europe is in a mess completely uh, because uh, they are now being guided entirely by what the United States wants to do on the ground vis-a-vis Russia, as well as the Baltic states and and Poland, uh, who are actually now determining uh, the course of uh, European involvement in the Ukraine war. And uh, economically, it is Europe that is going to suffer, not so much the United States.
0: Mr. Sybil, I was wanting to ask you, you know, you were foreign secretary at a critical time, you know, when, uh, you know, India after India had tested its nuclear weapons. And, you know, we've been lectured a lot uh, by the United States and Europe, you know, India and Pakistan and the rest of the world that how important it is to maintain peace and dialogue and so on and so forth. So, how is it that this peace and dialogue, I mean, how is it that the West was never really able to engage uh, Russia and Putin and establish some degree of, uh, you know, uh, if not trust, some degree of uh, dialogue, which perhaps would have prevented the situation we are today in Ukraine?
1: You are absolutely right. Because after Putin uh, took over, uh, he really wanted uh, Russia uh, to be accepted by Europe, to become part of Europe, because the Russians traditionally see themselves as part of Europe, despite the fact that the, the larger part of their territory is Asian. Um, and more so after the breakup of the Soviet Union uh, and all the you know Muslim part of Russia effectively got separated. So in that sense, uh, Russia became more European, but uh, they were rebuffed. Uh, the European Union wanted to treat Russia as it does uh, those who are aspiring to become members of the European Union, but not on an equal basis. And Russia uh, wanted a- an agreement with the European Union, which would uh, which would be based on an equality uh, of uh, interests uh, and uh, e- equality of uh, arrangements between the two countries, rather than Uh, what the uh, European Union has done when uh, more and more countries have wanted to join the the European Union. That is one, but much more importantly is the progressive expansion uh, of NATO and Russia has always had this deep, deep uh, grouse that uh, unlike the charter of the OSCE, uh, which said that uh, the new European architecture should be based on indivisible and equal security, uh, Russia was potentially looked by, by NATO uh, uh, as a threat, and in order to prevent the resurgence of Russia and a future threat from Russia, they decided to progressively expand uh, NATO. The first uh, push, real pushback, uh, came when uh, Russia intervened in, uh, in uh, Georgia, uh, when in the Bucharest summit in 2008, the doors were open to. Of Georgia and Ukraine to become NATO members Here I might tell you something interesting Which is that uh, The US ambassador at that time William Burns uh, Who was uh, with me in Moscow When I was ambassador there uh, And later now Has become the head of the CIA He's written, written this book The Back Channel In which uh, he lays out Quite clearly how he was warning Washington not to do this not to open the doors of nato to georgia and ukraine and sent telegram which he has quoted in his book to the effect that uh, the opposition to ukraine's membership is very deeply spread in russian uh, establishment it's not only the kremlin or the armed forces but the russians in general see that as an unacceptable provocation and he wanted first that the door should not be open to um, to Georgia and Ukraine for NATO membership. And he tried twice. And he himself says that uh, uh, his advice was not followed. And he explains this on the basis that there was a sense of hubris, he uses that word, in Washington, who believed that no matter what the Russian reaction, they can uh, deal with it. So that is how Putin in 2007, I was still ambassador there at the Munich Security Conference, lashed out against the West. And primarily on account of uh, NATO expansion and threatening the security of Russia. Now, between 2007, when he lambasted the West and laid out very clearly what his concerns were, and 2014, when uh, you know the coup d'état occurred, uh, which was clearly promoted by the West, there's no doubt about it, uh, and the elected, legitimately elected president of uh, Ukraine, Yanukovych, uh, was ousted from power, and the present, you know, dispensation uh, took over. Um, The, uh, in in these seven years, uh, you you know, the West did not change its policies and thinking. But more so after 2014, when Russia and the next uh, Crimea, uh, NATO came into Ukraine in a very big way. There's no doubt about that. They have been training them and arming them both in Poland, they're training them in the UK, etc., uh, etc. Et uh, and it became very clear to Putin that the manner in which NATO was, in, in effect, establishing itself on the ground would mean that if Russia had to intervene later, it would be even more difficult for them militarily uh, to reverse the ground situation. And therefore, According to what he has said also publicly, he felt he had, he had no option uh, but to intervene. But the another point which I want to stress, which is that in 2014-2015, uh, there were the Minsk 1 and 2 agreements, uh, which clearly laid out uh, a guideline for resolving the issue between the west and East, uh, eastern part of Ukraine on the basis of maintaining Ukrainian sovereignty barring crimea over donbas and it required a constitutional amendment in order to give autonomy uh, to this region and after this constitutional uh, revision was made then there would be elections in donbas and uh, after that the 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 security of the border between russia and ukraine would be handed over to the ukrainian forces in other words they would then therefore be able to preserve their sovereignty. Now, for seven years, for seven years, Putin waited uh, for this agreement to be implemented, an agreement that was ratified by the UN Security Council. And now you find the uh, former German uh, Chancellor, uh, the former Russian President, and the former Prime Minister of the UK, uh, Johnson, uh, now saying that, you know, the, the, the Minsk agreements was just a ploy to gain time, uh, to, re- to to, to arm, arm Ukraine and make it stronger.
0: So, Mr. Sybil, what is your sense? Will the West now not stop until they remove Putin from power? Is that the objective now of the war being conducted in the name of Ukraine?
1: Well, if you go by the statements that uh, President Biden himself has made and uh, the US, U.S. Secretary of Defense has made, it is quite clear that uh, they have not made no they have not made any bones about it that their whole objective is to weaken uh, Russia permanently militarily so that it can no longer pose a threat to its neighbors and hopefully uh, a, a regime change in Moscow and they've also talked about uh, uh, Putin as a war criminal
0: effort to curtail the devastation. ...that is occurring at the hands of a man
1: who, quite frankly, think is a war criminal. Uh, So, their goals are clear. Their assessment is that uh, Russia is getting bogged down. Russia will not be able to sustain uh, this conflict. uh, In parallel with Ukraine getting more armed and more effective on the ground against Russia. Uh, And also the objective, as I understand, is that the... Ukrainian forces should be able now uh, to capture more territory in the donbas Zaporizhia area and go up to the sea. Therefore, break the Russian uh, annexation of these territories into two, which would then make uh, the whole uh, Russian strategy unviable. And they feel they, they, can, they can do it and they can bleed uh, uh, Russia. So this is what uh, their game plan is. Unfortunately, they, they do not want any dialogue and diplomacy.
0: And what is your sense? I mean, will this continue as we, I mean, you think it may last another couple of years because there really doesn't seem to be any serious effort and any kind of dialogue and uh, neither the Ukrainians nor the Russians, uh, you know, at least on, you know in public, uh, there seems to be any move towards uh, ending the conflict uh, on the table.
1: Well, you know, uh, and this is a fact which now the Israeli Prime Minister has also confirmed. Uh, and and Putin and the Russians and the Foreign Minister Lavrov, Russia, have been saying this repeatedly, that in March we were close to an agreement with the Ukrainians. The broad contours of the agreement had been uh, reached. But then, uh, according to the Russians, Prime Minister Johnson flew into uh, Kiev and uh, persuaded uh, Zelensky uh, not to uh, uh, negotiate. Uh, 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 and promised full NATO support uh, to Zelensky. In other words, they stood in the way of a negotiated agreement. And this seems to, as I said, this has now been confirmed even by Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Israel Bennett, who first made the initial attempt to to mediate between the two sides. And then Turkey took over uh, later. So the other thing, of course, is as you know, the Americans and the Europeans are saying, it is not for us to tell Zelensky what he should do. After all, he has lost the territory. It is for him to determine what his position should be on negotiations. Uh, so <clears throat> we are not going to press him, uh, but we are going to give him the means uh, to make his own decisions with regard to what he should do. In other words, that they are backing uh, Zelensky's maximalist demands, which is not only that Russia is out of Donbas, but even out of Crimea. This is not going to happen. So, uh, now, how long this uh, war will continue, let me put it another way. At the end of the day, it is the larger country with more resources uh, which will be the winner. In other words, Ukraine can get as much material as they want from the West. But the material has to remain functional all the time. Repairs, spare parts, there has to be an industrial base uh, to sustain all the weaponry that is uh, coming in. But uh, Ukraine has no industrial base left. The industrial part of Ukraine is now in the hands of Russia. So even for a small thing, if they have a tank, even if there's a small uh, repair needed or a small spare part needed, it has to come from outside. Uh, So it's, it's not going to work. Whereas Russia has a functioning, totally functioning industrial base. So they can sustain it. Yes, they'll be punished for it. They'll pay a price for it, but they can sustain it. So to my mind, I have a feeling that it's a, it's a strong thing to say that the Europe is and the West is so consumed by hatred of Russia and especially Putin that they have lost all sense of balance and all sense of geopolitics.
0: Mr. Sybil, I also want to ask you about uh, the Chinese role and the Chinese perceptions of this ongoing war. Where do you think uh, China stands? Uh, is it uh, in a sort of... Uh, you know, uncritical uh, supporter of uh, what the Russians are doing uh, in Ukraine? Or do you think they have their own standpoint and their own position, you know, which uh, they possibly do communicate in, uh, you know, their private dialogue with the Russians?
1: No, it's not uncritical. As you know, after Russia invaded Ukraine, uh, there were Chinese uh, who were speaking on television uh, and there were reports from China. Uh, That uh, while there is support uh, amongst the Chinese uh, for Ukraine, but a very sizable percentage of the Chinese, it is based on social media and everything else, uh, don't, don't, uh, uh, not in favor of this war and and oppose this, Uh, you know. Russia and China have an old history of uh, tensions and animosity. They even went to to war. Uh, And there are people in China who still feel uh, that uh, despite the border agreement, that Russia is in occupation of large parts of historical China, which uh, theoretically may not be entirely wrong. Uh, But this is how empires are made. uh, You know, they lose territory, they gain territory. We can't go back into history. But if you look at it purely uh, as an academic exercise, the Chinese may not be wrong. And there are are concerns in Russia that they have this huge border uh, with China uh, and the Russian side is uh, not populated. And uh, as it is, Russia is a huge country with very limited population, just 142 million. And there are 104 billion Chinese on the other side. And lots of Chinese are coming across and settling down, marrying Russian women, doing agriculture, this and that. The Russians have been welcoming this because this gives them the manpower to produce food and everything else. <clears throat> but there are concerns that if this population grows in size, then there may be some problem in the future. I'm saying all this to say that uh, it's not as if uh, there are no suspicions on both sides. But what unites them today is, to my mind, looking from the outside, is a very flawed American strategy of treating both Russia and China at the same time as their adversaries. And this is a time with Russia, when the United States acknowledges that it is not in the same position as before to be the world policeman. They have been saying that in order to deal with the China threat, for instance, they need allies. And that's the whole sense of Quad and Indo-Pacific and everything else. and. Uh, American leaders traveling to Japan and South Korea, Philippines and this and that uh, in order to solidify their alliances. Likewise, in Europe, uh, they are very happy now that the NATO alliance has been solidified because they know, Americans know that they can't alone now deal with the challenges they face. Now, China' challenge is big enough, but they made it bigger by antagonizing Russia. So, rather than doing what Kissinger did, at one time in the 1970s, of breaking China away from Russia. What the Americans and the Europeans could have done was to have broken uh, Russia away from China. Now the situation is, and here I come to a direct answer to your question, that the Chinese know that if uh, the Americans and NATO succeed in Russia, the next target is China. All the national security strategy policy papers, national defense, Uh, policy papers of the United States are calling China as their principal adversary and and are admitting that the only power that can challenge the United States globally in terms of USP is China. Uh, And uh, so, uh, the Chinese know that uh, uh, they will be the next target. And uh, what is happening in Taiwan uh, clearly uh, tells them that a very volatile uh, issue uh, is, is simmering there and can erupt uh, at any time since the Chinese and Xi Jinping have made it known that they're going to incorporate Taiwan into China one way or the other and use military force if necessary. So that is uh, one aspect. The other, of course, is that the Chinese are benefiting from this situation because uh, now Russia is selling them more and more gas, uh, more and more oil, So they have now even bigger access uh, to Russia's uh, raw materials and resources to fuel their own economy, which is a huge boon. Which is a huge boon. Look at India. We are buying discounted Russian oil and everything else, which is a big help, economic help. Look at China. The trade between China and Russia have gone up to almost $200 billion. Uh, So they're gaining uh, uh, from this economically. And third, of course, is that... uh, In a sense, if Russia is not defeated but gets weakened, then I think uh, the Chinese can say to themselves that the G2 that we have in mind can become more of a reality. Because so long as Russia is very strong, they can't have this G2.
0: Mr. Sibala, I'd saved the India question for the last for you. So I'm going to ask it now. What is your sense, Uh, you know, how has India played, uh, you know, what seems to be a fine balancing act between the Russians and the United States and the West? Uh, We have a very close um, alliance or, you know, close ties uh, with the United States and other European countries. At the same time, we have had a, you know, traditionally strong alliance with uh, the Russians. So how do you think uh, this game has been played in the context of uh, the Ukraine war?
1: I think we have played the game as best as we could, and in fact, better than one would have expected. In the sense that uh, the passion uh, with which the West is dealing with Russia could have actually uh, made us uh, much more, uh, much more, would uh, made us come under much more pressure from the West uh, than the case has been. And uh, if we had shown less confidence and less courage in our own convictions, we would have found it more difficult to navigate uh, in the situation that has arisen, uh, Because, as you rightly said, the uh, United States has become our biggest partner in every sense of the word. Economically, $162 billion of trade, $20 billion of arms, deals. Uh, our, this, all the sectors of our modern economy are linked to the uh, United States, especially our IT sector. The range of dialogues is vast on every issue of concern to us. The United States has become a key player. We are members of Quad and now we are members of the ITU2 in in West Asia. We've signed all the foundational agreements with the United States. We are negotiating an FTA with Europe. Uh, France is a very major partner now in defence and otherwise. UK, we are negotiating an FTA. So the entire trust of our uh, economic and political and security policies is uh, getting more and more linked westwards. Uh, but at the same time, Russia has a position uh, in our entire uh, global outlook and our, and our view of where our national interest lies, which is very, very important. Uh, because the more we walk into the Western camp and shed our or weaken our ties with Russia, then effectively, uh, we have, would have very little what we call strategic autonomy left. We would then become more and more subject uh, to uh, the demands that the West would make on us uh, to align our policies with them as, the, as they do with the Japan and South Korea uh, and Australia and everybody else. That is one aspect of it. That is strategic autonomy, uh, that we do not want to be allied with any country to the extent that we lose the flexibility to pursue our national interests as we see it, because we've seen for decades how the United States uh, has actually uh, been very, has harmed our national security and our strategic interests, uh, whether on the nuclear side, on the missile side, dual technology and everything else. Uh, So, that is one. The other is that uh, if we, for example, move out of Uh, we'll then have to review our thinking about BRICS and SCO and everything else, which again doesn't make sense. Because if you want multipolarity, after all, why do we want multipolarity? Because the West has dominated uh, the international system for uh, centuries. And uh, we want to be able to have a place in that system and that can only come if the Western hegemony is somehow uh, diluted. And how can that happen? It can only happen if there is multipolarity. And who are the pillars of this multipolarity is uh, Russia and China. Uh, And of course, we can include in this Brazil and South Africa or whatever. That was the sense of BRICS. Uh, As regards the SCO, we are an Asian power. Uh, United States is not an Asian power. We are an Asian power. We have very major in security, long-term interests to the west of our country, uh, Afghanistan, Central Asia. Uh, we don't want to be ousted uh, from Asia as an Asian country if, for example, we uh, are visibly seen uh, to be only in the Western camp. Uh, so uh, we are there, therefore, to protect our interests there. And, of course, there are other very major pressing reasons. One, of course, is that uh, Russia has never sanctioned us Russia has stood by us over the years. Uh, there, there is a basic trust between India and Russia, which has proved itself over time. Uh, 60 to 70% of our armed uh, forces are still dependent, uh, uh, still use Russian origin uh, equipment. Can you imagine if uh, Russia did a little bit of what uh, the United States and Europe have done in the past? You know they very liberally use sanctions, and if Russia used sanctions against us, at a time when fifty thousand, sixty thousand Chinese troops are on border, on our border, and we need to be fully prepared on the ground, and we are such heavily reliant on Russian material, if there was a slowdown of uh, Russian supplies or or uh, lack of availability of servicing and spare parts, we would be in a mess. Uh, so even from Purely that point of view, uh, we need to keep Russia uh, on on our side. And finally, you know, we have these larger plans, as you know, Vladivostok. And all that was before Ukraine, this Vladivostok, Chennai Corridor, our investments in the Russian Far East, our investments in the Russian energy sector, since we are an energy-hungry country. All that uh, purely in terms of our national self interest requires that we maintain good relations, close relations with Russia, not to mention the North-South, international North-South corridor, uh, which can be a potential route for increasing our trade uh, relations uh, with Russia and beyond. As you know, uh, initially when we started buying discounted Russian oil, uh, there was a lot of of criticism uh, from uh, the West, the United States in particular. And openly they said that uh, Russia must, India must reduce its dependence on Russian oil as well as on uh, Russia uh, on the military side, etc., uh, etc. Et uh, now you see there's a change in discourse. Now they're no longer talking about uh, why, should, why is India, at least at the official level, why is India buying discounted Russian oil. In fact, politically, at the political level, they're telling us that uh, you can buy as much Russian oil as you want uh, so long as uh, it's not uh, you don't use uh, our tankers and our insurance companies because then there's the issue of sanctions and they accept the fact that um, if if india were not to buy russian oil india will then also then go to west asia and other sources of oil which now europe is is uh, going to which means that uh, there will be upward push in prices which the west doesn't want So they're quite reconciled. And the the irony is that uh, we buy Russian oil, we refine it into products and we sell these refined products to Europe and the United States. And they're accepting it. So this is one. Secondly, the earlier thing about reducing our uh, defense ties with Russia and this and that and that, that again, from let's say from Doval's visit, he recently visited the United States invited by the U.S. National Security Advisor. Together, they talk about this new IECET initiative, Critical and Emerging Technologies. And uh, they preside over a function where the U.S. industry in this area is present in order to push the uh, cooperation in this very vital sector, which is very important for the future. They won't be doing this if they still had those kind of early early reservations about uh, India still retaining very strong defence ties uh, with Russia. They have become more pragmatic. And to end uh, uh, what you said earlier that about how we played our cards, I think uh, we, have, we have played our cards well. And the success of that, uh, you, you see more and more on the ground.
0: Mr. sibal thank you so much for patiently answering all my questions on what looks to be an issue that's not going to go away, the geopolitical competition that we see in the rest of the world, especially, uh, you know, which is centered around Ukraine today. So thank you so much uh, for taking to the Hindus in Focus podcast. Thank you for inviting me. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify,